Challenges of Faith radio program. I'm Gary McCann, like to acknowledge God. And our listeners, our guest tonight is Christian author John D. Girolamo. And I just ruined his name. And I have I have a policy that I try not to do that. So first and foremost, let me apologize to our brother John. But John is a critically acclaimed author, speaker, and anti-human trafficking advocate, and member of the Christian Authors Network. He's the board president of Bringing Our Valley Hope, a nonprofit located in Chaffee County, Colorado, whose objective is to end human trafficking in Central Colorado through education. Brother John, welcome to Challenges of Faith radio program. Uh, Thank you, Brother Gary. It's great to be here. I, I appreciate the opportunity. Brother John, for the listeners, uh, would you uh, share your last name? Sure. It's D. Girolamo. All right. Thank you, sir. <clears throat> and listeners, please make sure that uh, you look at our show notes for all the information on our brother. <clears throat> John, how are you and loved ones? Uh, you know, we're doing well. We had a, we had a nice, uh, you know, family time uh, over the holidays, and um, I've got some new grandchildren to spend some time with, so I was <laughs> grateful for that opportunity. So uh, doing very well. All right. Hey, and congratulations for the grandchildren. Congratulations. Thank you. What were your aspirations while growing up? You know, I was uh, an accountant for my professional career, which was about 35 years. And uh, I, I always had this creative side, and I really enjoyed storytelling. And so when I went into retirement, I, I knew I kind of wanted getting back to um, what I was really wanting to do, you know, 35 plus years ago, which was to do writing and uh, and tell stories. And I, you know, just really happy I've had this opportunity to write a couple of books like that. Mm-hmm. And for the listeners, uh, what uh, John is sharing, irrespective of your age, um, always keep moving forward. And whatever the aspirations are that God has placed inside of you, pursue them. You never know who you're meant to reach. John, you have a new guidebook out. It's not about the predator, a parent's guide to Internet and social media safety, along with two others. But let's find out about all three, shall we? First of all, why did you write It's Not About the Badge? Uh, sure. So I, I, wrote the, uh, I wrote the book in 2020, and it came out a year later. And, uh, you know, this was during the pandemic and uh, defund the police movement, et cetera. And I felt as if the police, especially those from small towns, didn't have a voice. And I, I wanted to kind of tell the stories of the human side of policing. You know, why was a particular day extraordinary to that officer, and how did it impact him or her on a personal level? And, and kind of explain that, kind of the person behind the badge, so to speak. So it's not so much about policing as it is about their experiences and how they deal with it. Um, as part of their family, marriage, et cetera. The host of Mike Rosen's show said, cops are ordinary people with families who have extraordinary jobs that can put their lives on the line each day. And as you walk in their shoes, you'll appreciate the pressure of making split-second decisions and life-threatening encounters with dangerous criminals. As a cop, underreacting can take your life from your family 
overreacting and cost others their lives and put you in jail. Good cops, the vast majority, should be defended, not defunded. You know, I started off from the law enforcement perspective as <laughs> coming out of the academy and uh, the I remember the uh, a commander's son and I were assigned to what would be known as the area town where you know uh, uh, the major crimes part A and part B and I remember he and I were sent on a a, a burglary run and <clears throat> and the person that was running out the door and we chased him and and we jumped this fence, and there was a Doberman Pinchers who helped us jump back over the fence. But we ended up uh, catching a person, and uh, when we did, he had his weapon, and and uh, he was gearing to fire, but we was glad he did. Now, I didn't tell my wife that because, you know, we didn't want her to overwork. But just like you have shared, it's kind of like when you look at the news, you know, uh, the citizen only receives uh, that 15 minutes. But it's more to the story than just that. And I remember last uh, my last story. But I remember one time going on a um, an accident on the freeway, and the car unfortunately was smashed in, and and all you could see was the person's uh, leg, and it turned out to be a child. But I share those in correlation with what you just shared because while going home. I had to find that space where I could mentally have to leave all of that behind and not take it home, all those emotions. But in reality, you, you, it does stay with you. John, why your second book is not about the sex? So I was, uh, I was interviewing police officers for the first book, and I would typically, uh, towards the end of the interview, ask easy questions that I might to, uh, you know, put into a story like, what's your favorite song? What's your favorite movie? And I asked uh, one of the officers, what would you do if you won the lottery? And I'm expecting an answer about going boating on the lake all day. And instead the officer just sort of turned to me stone cold and said he quit his job and hunt down human traffickers. Mm -hmm. And it was then that I knew I had the subject for my next book, but more importantly, I realized I didn't know that much about human trafficking. And I thought, you know, if I don't know much, you know, probably the average person doesn't either. So I wanted to tell uh, stories from four different perspectives about human trafficking. So I interviewed a survivor, an advocate, uh, a law enforcement officer, uh, and a brothel madam's tale of redemption. So you get this really unique view of human trafficking and you learn about kind of how things work and what happens through stories, through plot lines, you know, action, dialogue, et cetera. And, uh, and so that's, that's kind of how that book came about. You know, what's interesting in listening to you, you know, especially as we started the program off as relates to your background from an accountant standpoint, and as you know, as an expert numbers, but now all of a sudden you're telling the human part of each of these stories. And when you're speaking of uh, a survivors, uh, Rihanna Leary, a survivor of human sex trafficking, says as relates to your book, bringing awareness to the public. The book is a must-read for everyone from the beautiful suburbs to small country towns. The stories accurately portray 
the horrors of human trafficking happening right under our noses. Now, along with Beth Ritchie, the director of Bringing Our Valley Hope, she says everyone needs to read this book. Human traffickers are truly hunting their prey, the innocent and the desperate. Educating ourselves and others is the only way we will stop them and making our communities safer. And again, let me come back to John to say, first and foremost, thank you for both books, because again, both are needed so that we, the public, can understand. Now to your new and third book. It's not about the predator, a parent's guide to internet and social media safety. January is Human Trafficking Prevention Month. The U.S. Department of State says as both a grave crime and a human rights abuse, it compromises national and economic security, undermines the rule of law, and harms the well-being of individuals and communities everywhere. It's a crime of exploitation of individuals and communities. Traffickers profit at the expense of their victims by compelling them to perform labor or to engage in commercial sex in every region of the United States and around the globe. With an estimated 27.6 million victims, at any given time, human traffickers prey on people of all ages, backgrounds, and nationalities, exploiting them for their profit. The top 10 states for human trafficking last year was California, Texas, Florida, New York, Michigan, Ohio, Georgia, Illinois, Missouri, and Mississippi, and California is the worst state for human trafficking with 1,334 cases. John, what are some of the tactics used by predators engaged in human trafficking? Yeah, so let me give you a couple of quick um, statistics that kind of put, put that, uh, that in context. So you know, kidnapping is about 5% in the human trafficking world. So it's not how Hollywood portrays that typically as happening. Unfortunately, about 57% of those being exploited are under age, and 60% is through someone that they know, uh, family, friends, classmates, as well as online. And I think a lot of people are surprised that that number is, is really high. And so the tactic is either going to be through generally through a, a physical force or through coercion. And, you know, many of the tactics of the predators, um, you know, engage in human trafficking, they're similar to whether they have other nefarious goals, you know, whether they want to, not just trafficking, they may want to also obtain pictures, uh, they may want to extort people. And, and so many times they're going to, um, you know, kind of prey on the vulnerable. And that could be somebody who maybe, you know, comes from a broken home or, is someone who might be, say, lost in the foster system. And, of course, very vulnerable teens are going to be those that are, that are runaway or maybe uh, addicted to some kind of substance. Mm-hmm. Let's go further. Why do you believe taking God out of schools and the public square have increased pornography usage? Yeah, so statistics are showing that, uh, you know, by the time someone has graduated high school, uh, 75% or higher of all those school kids have either seen, sent, received some kind of nude photo. 
And that number is about 40% for middle schoolers, which should really, um, you know, kind of horrify all, all parents. And, you know, so what we're seeing is, you know, you're taking God out of school, out of the public square, and, you know, nature abhors a vacuum. So something else is going to replace that. And what we've seen is a replacement of a secular society where, you know, the, the truth and what's right and wrong is determined by the individual as opposed to listening to God, going back to biblical values. And, you know, we, we live in a society that is kind of obsessed with Hollywood and celebrity. They're very selfish and views of, you know, sex, intimacy, relationships, et cetera, um, are not going back to biblical values. And so what's happening along with um, technology is you've seen kind of this rise of uh, pornography usage. And unfortunately, it's going down in age as far as when that first viewing happens. Now it's about 10 or 11 years old. And it can be very addictive to people, and it's just, you know, it's as easy as one or two clicks away on your phone or, or laptop. And, and we're seeing that really impact society. Mm-hmm. So we just talked about the teenagers as it relates to the predators and so forth and, and some of the tactics that's being used against them. And now we're talking about the, whether it's the teens or, or the little little ones. When I look at the little ones when I say at the age of 10, um, as it relates to school and just like you indicated, as it relates to taking God out because you're talking about forming that basis of right and wrong and moral and so forth. And then just like you're sharing, uh, uh, you know, Hollywood is going to paint it one way, but in reality it's a demise of uh, that individual who's affected, which affects, as you know, the home and neighborhood and so forth. And having said that, as it relates to, I know you mentioned secular, how does our secular culture feed sex teen extortion and human trafficking? Yeah, so I, as I was mentioning, you know, pornography is now viewed as a young, you know, young age, that 10 or, 10 or 11. The, the person's not even fully developed. Um, physically or mentally or emotionally. And a lot of scientists are telling us that it, it, it literally kind of rewires the brain when they're, when they're watching so much of that. And what happens is that they're, they're viewing this content on a regular basis. So looking at content, creating content becomes normalized. And so when they get to school and somebody asks them or, hey, send me a picture of yourself, it doesn't seem all that unusual because they're, they're kind of used to seeing things uh, and seeing this content getting created. I, w- I was talking to, um, to, a, uh, to a police officer, and, and they were talking about how um, you know, some of the senior boys were just going to all of the freshman girls and asking for pictures and seeing how many of them would respond with, with pictures. And, and so we're seeing this kind of you know, get normalized. And so it's kind of the opposite, if you will, of, of kind of biblical values, both focused on marriage and family. Now we're seeing you know, more of a hookup culture and people are seeing physical 
bodies, not real people. And and so when you devalue love and intimacy, you you get a result of just you know kind of physical transactions. And of course, if if kids are sending pictures, you know those images live on. Uh, you know, many times someone's going to say, "Oh, I won't share them." Of course, that almost never happens. So it does get shared, and you've got embarrassment, shame. They could get cyberbullied. They could get extorted. Um, they could, you know, go into depression, suicide, etc. And then you take a step back and you say, "Who is really happy about this situation?" And the answer is, it's that online predator. So somebody has sent a picture to a classmate, if an online friend who could be a predator that you don't know, if they're asking for pictures, well, now all of a sudden it doesn't really seem strange when they ask for content, and yet now it's even a worse situation than a classmate. Wow. So how worried should the parents be about this teen sexting? Uh, Yeah, in a word, word, very worried. Uh, You know, many... Many teens are, are seeing this as this fun and flirty thing. I've, I've, I've heard that it's called the new first base, um, which, you know, for someone in my generation just kind of shakes their head and, and just doesn't, doesn't quite understand that. Um, and, and they just don't really see, you know, sending pictures of, of you know, kind of private areas um, as, a, as a problem. And, you know, teens, you know, we've all been teenagers. We've all made mistakes, et cetera, but now those those mistakes kind of live on, and mm-hmm. that's what's really different. Um, so parents should be very worried about this. You know, I, I've I've talked to people um, in the industry where um, they've gone in and, and they've investigated situations where somebody sent a picture and someone shared it on a group chat with 20 other people. And so now, not only is that picture out there, but what if your kid was one of the 20 and they didn't even ask for a picture? Now all of a sudden they have, you know, a middle schooler or high schooler's picture on their phone. You know, by, mm-hmm. by most states' definition of, you know, uh, of how laws work, you've got essentially, you know, child pornography now on your kid's phone and they didn't even ask for this picture. Mm-hmm. And so it's just opening this door of, of all these uh, all these issues, and you know this is an opportunity as a parent to talk about you know their biblical values and why doing something like this you know not only is is wrong but but how it can cause all kinds of, of problems and stress for the team. I know you had mentioned um, when we were talking about uh, human trafficking some of the ways that. Um, individuals um some of the techniques they may use where why and how does the predator approach teenagers online yeah so when you go into the why um they're really after one of three things which is going to be explicit content they want to extort money or they want to meet for some kind of physical encounter now typically they're going to go after uh, boys for money and females for the images uh, and meeting in person. When it comes to the where, they go where the kids are. So they go to Snapchat, TikTok, Kix, Roblox, 
Minecraft, places like that. And specifically, they're going to want to get into chat rooms and private messaging. You know, there are some programs that are maybe completely age-appropriate, uh, like a game like, uh, like Roblox. But you can launch into a, a, a private messaging program. And now all of a sudden, that predator is with someone one-on-one. They're going to want to get information and try to become that person's online friend. And it takes a, literally a matter of you know, a minute or two to set up a profile, and a predator is going to have multiple profiles. They're going to go after these kids where they hang out, and they're going to have different profiles that, that kind of um, try to target different people. So, for example, maybe your kid really likes uh, soccer or dance. Well, all of a sudden now, that's their profile. They like those things too. So they're going to do those things very specifically. The problem is is that in today's world, the teens see a, a having a 1,000 followers as a goal instead of a problem. So there's real-world examples. I, I could give you if you'd like me to kind of go into some detail <clears throat> yes. exactly how they do that. Uh-huh. Okay, so – yeah, so, so one of them is, you know, going after boys. Uh, that's, that's something that a lot of people don't think about. But typically what will happen is somebody will be behind this profile. They'll have a, a picture of an attractive, say, college age or, you know, young 20-something uh, woman. And she will reach out to him on social media to say, hey, let's be a friend. Uh, or follower, and it just takes a second to to kind of click. Sure, why not? This is a good-looking girl. Click. We're 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 now connected online. Well, pretty much immediately, she is going to send pictures uh, of of herself, and I and I kind of say that almost in air quotes because mm-hmm. it's really not going to be her most of the time. It's probably a picture downloaded from uh, from a pornography site. Well, now she starts to say, hey, I've shown you pictures, now you show me. And so she pressures him into doing that, and he does. And the next thing you know, he's getting extorted. Mm-hmm. And as mm-hmm. soon as he sends money, they ask for more money. And they will absolutely threaten to, well, if you don't send me money, you know, I'm, I'm now part of your social network, so I could see who else is part of you. I know who your mom is, your dad, your brother, grandma, et cetera. And they will absolutely send those pictures out to do that. And so they're, they're counting on that, that boy's depression, shame, kind of about that situation. Uh, they're, they're counting on that to, to try to get more money. Now, I was talking to a police officer about this example specifically, and I was told that sometimes everything I just said will happen in 24 hours or less. Mm. <clears throat> did, did they give an indication of why that length of time, short length of time, that 24 hours? Um, yeah, so it just, you know, kids, kids today kind of see online friends as the equivalent of, friends that we know in person. And, and that's different for this generation. So they kind of have a different way of, of viewing things. And many times they think it's, 
you know, safer to start, just have a relationship online because it's kind of one step removed in a sense. And I've heard that from more than one police officer. I've, se- I've seen research by the FBI and kind of bigger law enforcement agencies that say that, that sometimes, you know, um, it happens uh, more often than we'd like uh, in literally a matter of hours and, and, and sometimes within a day. So it's not, mm. that's not an unusual circumstance. John, what are some of the ways that the parents can protect their child or children? Yeah, there's lots of ways that, um, that you can do that. And so um, I would say the first thing that, that you've got to do is, uh, is you've got to have those awkward conversations with your – you have to tell them at an early age that you know, there's danger out there online. And, you know, we've seen it where we've seen five-, six-year-old kids on a tablet, on a phone, playing a game or something like that, and, and they've now got access. The, the predators now can, can see them somewhere. So, so the first thing you want to do is, is uh, have those conversations. And then, you know, the second thing is look into parental control uh, types of software. There are programs out there like Bark. There's many others that a parent could put on, on the phone and really um, – get some control uh, over it. You know, you're, you're, you're the parent. It's time to be the parent and not the friend. And you can check your kid's phone. You should be absolutely looking at all the programs that they use and checking those chat rooms, especially for the youngsters. There's something called a dumb phone instead of a smartphone. And there's several companies out there that, that provide that. And they don't uh, have the capability of taking pictures, receiving pictures. They generally don't have Internet access. They're, they're you know, much more of a controlled environment. So, so I suggest that, that parents you know, kind of do that on, on a regular basis and figure out who are their friends and followers. You know, it, I, I've heard from, from uh, police officers that the typical popular teenage girl in high school has thousands of followers. I don't wow. guarantee she doesn't know thousands of people. So mm-hmm. if you have two, 3,000 people in your social network, I, I can almost guarantee there's a, a couple of predators in there. Mm-hmm. So do you believe social media is safe? Well, in an answer, no. <laughs> so, uh, but it is here to stay, I think. So it, it's, so, so what the parents need to do is to try to mitigate those risks, you know, have those conversations with their, with, with their kids, and, you know, don't let them be on the phone 24-7. When it's bedtime, you get the phone. Um, you know, have them go to sleep. You know, it, it, at, at best case, they're wasting time surfing the Internet and not getting the proper amount of sleep. At worst, it's midnight and they're chatting with some kind of predator who they're going to zoom in on whatever that person, you know, has an unmet need where, you know, oh, my parents don't understand me, and then they'll come back and say, well, you know, I understand you, you're, you're great, blah, blah, blah. They're, they're, they're just going to try to be as manipulative as possible, and once they do that, then they're going to 
know, they're going to start asking for pictures. They're going to start asking to meet, et cetera. And every kid, even from good families, are going to have moments of vulnerability. And to be able to, you know, have that conversation is really important because what parents don't quite understand is, you know, that your kid could be sitting at the kitchen table watching you make dinner, and yet they're sitting on the phone with somebody that could be in another country, and you just mm-hmm. you just have no idea and no, no control over it. Mm-hmm. And the information that you're sharing, is, you know, whether the parent is a believer or a non-believer, it, it's applicable and helpful for them, especially for the love and concern that they have for their child or children in this cold and different world. Brother John, what happened when a police officer set up a profile as a 13-year-old? So I, I interviewed a, uh, a police officer, and he went undercover online as a 13-year-old girl and immediately started getting friend requests from complete strangers. And within the first 24 hours, um, the person on the other side of the keyboard was asking for pictures and uh, wanting to go out on, on a date. Now, the officer is typing in, uh, hey, I'm only 13. How do I go out on a date? Do I ride my bike? But it's winter time. You know, those kinds of things. So it was very obvious to the other person, you're talking to a middle schooler. And mm-hmm. it did not deter the other the other person. And so they started using very detailed and explicit language of what they wanted to do. And they said, hey, let's meet at a motel first to uh, get together before dinner. And um, and so they set this all up. And this uh, this predator criminal was promptly arrested uh, by the officer and the team. And they found his laptop and phone uh, were there on the premises. And this person had sent out hundreds of just random requests to middle schoolers. Mm. 90% of all of those middle schools just accepted. You know, I want more friends. The bigger number of friends and followers I have, the better. 90% accepted without question of who this person is. And um, this criminal had... 20 different pictures of ones that people had sent to him. He had previously met, um, um, had an encounter with two people at a motel because he'd been doing this a while. And, and, you know. Brother John, you, uh, your voice fade, has faded out the day before he was going to get married. Mm-hmm. Now, he was marrying a lady who had a child from a previous marriage. So guess how old the fiancé's daughter was? Mm-mm. 13 huh. years old. You know, wow. I, you know, I'm not creative enough. I can't make up that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. And so, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, in a sense, it was for this for this criminal, it was almost a numbers game. He's just sending out as many requests to make online connections as possible and who reacts, who's interested, who's lonely, who wants to chat back. And that's where they go zoom in on. And so, um, you know, I was just shocked when, 
when this uh, when this officer told me this story. And unfortunately, he said that this was not a an exception case. This was kind of when he was doing this as part of his job. Um, this was very typical that he would set up these profiles, and within 24 to 48 hours, he had uh, you know criminals chatting up what they thought to be a 13-year-old. Mm-hmm. All right. So you've encouraged and are encouraging parents who care to take inventory of, of their child or children, and they're doing that. So what ways do the teenage try to circumvent the parental controls on their electronic devices? Yeah, so I, I encourage everybody listening today to go to YouTube, type in, what do I do if I have strict parents? And they will be horrified to see thousands of videos put together by teens, for teens specifically, on how to uh, get away with stuff. You know, in, in the old days, if you were uh, wanting to be sneaky, you would have to either ask a friend or be creative. Now you just have to ask, you know, Siri, Alexa, or YouTube. And, it, you know, I, I, I did this when a police officer told me to go do this, and I went and did my own typing, and I just saw you know, video after video of, hey, this is how you do this. And, and so that's, you know, unfortunately, it's that easy for a, a, a team to, to just go ask essentially random strangers, how do I get away with stuff? And one of the things they'll tell them about are different programs. So you can get on your phone what's called a calculator program, and it does real math. It'll, do, it'll help you with your math homework. But when you look at that um, app in the, in the store, it says we have secret folders, a vault, hide your secrets, those kinds of things. And so – there's programs out there that will also, um, for the person who downloads it, they'll hide other apps. So I always tell parents, you should, um, you should know every program that's downloaded on their phone. You can get programs from iPhone or Android that kind of help you control what gets downloaded uh, on that. Um, one of the other little tricks is they'll change the time zone. So maybe you've put a program on their phone that says, hey, the phone goes off at, um, you know, 11 p.m. or something like that. But they've put in Hawaii time. If you're on the East Coast, mm-hmm. well, guess what? <laughs> you know, 11 p.m. Is, is now, you know, in the middle of the night <laughs> because the phone, the phone thinks you're in Hawaii. And parents just don't think, you know, see these things. You know, kids have they've always been – ahead of the parents of technology, but I think now they're two, three, four steps ahead of parents from a technological perspective, you know, on social media, on phones. You, you might be a whiz at PowerPoint or, you know, a, a computer whiz on, on writing software programs, but that's a whole different skill set to be, um, to be savvy on, uh, on these social media apps. Mm, mm, mm. Brother John, you have included a bonus chapter in your new book 
without revealing all so that the listeners can purchase your book, what are some of the ways scammers target the elderly, the older people? Yeah, so I was uh, I was doing a talk at a um, kind of a retirement home um, kind of uh, situation, and so I wanted to expand uh, about trying to protect the elderly, and you know many of the tactics used by scammers against the elderly they it's it's not that different than than going after adults or, or kids or something like that, but. One of the tactics that they use, and I, I describe seven of them in the book. One of them is called, I, I call it the government imposter. So in this scam, uh, uh, someone who's trying to do fraud is going to contact an older person claiming to be someone from a, a well-known government agency. So Medicare, the IRS, Social Security, et cetera. So for example, uh, they call you up and they say, hey, I'm, I'm from the IRS, and there's a problem with your tax return last year, and something was going on. And then they start peppering them with questions where the person may give up personal information, their Social Security number, et cetera. They may be looking to steal your identity, or they may say that, um, hey, we have um, – a situation where there's a you didn't file your your uh, tax return correctly, you've got an FD of two hundred dollars, and if you don't pay, um, you know the penalty is going to be big. And then they they ask for your credit card, and so um, so we kind of go through different scams like that. Now these agencies will almost never contact you directly over the phone. Um, they won't even really send you texts or anything like that. They're usually going to do this on a formal letter, but they're going to press that senior citizen to, you have to act now, you have to pay now, or it's going to be a really big problem. And so they kind of pressure them into doing that. And they're, they're either going to try to steal their identity or they're just going to try to uh, take their money, get their credit card information. That type of thing. Mm. And so I go over kind of seven Seven different. Um, you you have and are providing um, a valuable service um, for everyone and powerful in-depth information. How can listeners purchase each of your books? Sure, uh, they're all sold on Amazon. So you can look up uh, you can look up my name or or the title. For example, it's not about the creditor. I do have a website that goes into a little more detail so people can find out uh, more about what the book um, books are about. And that website is www.itisnotabout.com. That's been my kind of theme is, is the title of the book being It's Not About Something. For example, it's not about the predator. It's really about you as the parent, what you can do to protect your loved ones. Um, it's going to be almost impossible to stop predators from being online, but you can, you can influence what happens and, with your own kids and what happens in your own family. Mm-hmm. And again, listeners, you can find John's information on our show notes as well. John, any final words? And what role has Jesus Christ played in your writing career? Yeah, I, I would say final words, um, Four words, be diligent and stay faithful. 
I, I think those are things that, that every parent has to do. You you have to be diligent uh, throughout that uh, their childhood. You can't do this at 12 and think everything's fine at 14. Uh, so you do have to do that. And, and to stay faithful, you know, I, I think for me, um, I, I look at my relationship with Jesus as really providing me uh, guidance and support, you know, trying to keep me on track. Um, you know, sometimes it's tough, tough to, to do writing and really trying to figure out what I should be doing, what, what should I be um, direction I should be going in. So I, I feel this is a bit of a calling for me to, to be writing these books. And I feel like if I didn't have the, the support of, of Jesus Christ, it would be a lot lonelier path. Mm-hmm. Brother John, thank you for taking the time to, to come on Challenges of Faith radio program and to share all that you have shared. And again, I extend the invitation to you to come back anytime, especially with your, your next book, whenever it is. Feel free to come back. I would definitely like to do that, and I'll be in touch when uh, when my next book is uh, is out there. All right. Listeners, thank you for taking the time yourselves and tuning in to Challenges of Faith radio program. I'm Gary McCants. Until the next time. Thank you so much for having me on the